Welcome to Data Remediations, a podcast connecting environmental data with people and places through stories and art. Welcome back to part two of episode three of Data Remediations. I'm Patricia Kim. And I'm Bethany Wiggin. In this part, we'll continue talking about ground truthing, or how on-the-ground experiences and people's lived experiences, their personal stories, can productively dialogue with the model truths of environmental and climate change. So remember, in part one, we talked to scholar Candace Collison, who has worked with diverse local communities to understand how ground and model truths interact productively. Here's Candace. There are all these communities in which there are indigenous experts who have been observing for decades and who have oral histories that stretch back many other decades, right? And and who have, you know, very interesting analyses about what they think is, you know, happening in the world. And they often do also read scientific reports and are aware of what's happening in the region more broadly. In part two, we'll take a closer look at what happens when we don't have enough data. We'll speak with a scientist, Peter DiCarlo, who talked with public research intern Grace. Say hi, Gracie. Hi, Gracie. And artist Roderick Coover, who talked with Patricia. Say hi, Patricia. Hello, Patricia. (laughs) And we talked with Rod also briefly in part one. Although Pete and Rod approached Philadelphia's refinery landscape using very different research methods and produced very different research outcomes, their work jointly demonstrates how different modes of study can complement one another. Yeah. Artist Roderick Coover, whom we met in part one of episode three, is also a professor at Temple University and directs the Documentary Arts and Visual Research Program. And we're delighted that this year he's also the 2019 Mellon Penn Program in Environmental Humanities Artist in Residence. Woo! And scientist Peter Carlo is an atmospheric chemist and directs the Drexel Air Resources Research Laboratory. Two years ago, Pete DiCarlo and I founded the Schuylkill Corps. We're a collaborative, quite informal group of researchers who are devoted to drawing attention to all the things we wish we know and we can know about the Schuylkill landscape. Both Rod and Pete have spent significant amounts of time on the same waterways, working from canoes and kayaks, sometimes bigger boats. We've lost some equipment. It's fallen overboard. The tide has gotten it. It's been mysteriously missing. (laughs) Together, our work really attempts to address the lack of good quality and actionable data, although our research methods and practices differ. So let's Let's get get started. The Schuylkill River is the largest tributary of the Delaware River, and it's simultaneously vibrant and vulnerable. The Schuylkill and its watershed are host to an oil port and a refinery complex, and as we learned in part one, a wildlife refuge, Tinicum marshlands, and various human and non-human communities like Eastwick. The Schuylkill has recently been the subject of historical, scientific, public health, and autistic research. For example, the Schuylkill River and Urban Waters Research Corps 
is a hub for many researchers who have worked to surface different kinds of data from the watershed. Last summer, I had the opportunity to work as a student intern with Schuylkill Corps. One important area of recent research for a couple of members of the Schuylkill Corps concerns the post-industrial landscapes of the Greater Delaware Estuary. Both Pete DiCarlo and Roger Kruva have focused their work on these landscapes and, as we'll learn, have tried to address issues of data poverty, as well as patchy, incomplete data. As we mentioned, I had the opportunity, as part of my internship, to speak with Pete. I asked him about the Schuylkill industrial history and its ecological impact today. The refinery remains this very massive complex, and for many people it's the first thing they see when they come into Philadelphia from the airport. I've had many guests and other people ask why it's there, and I think the reality of the situation is that it's been grandfathered in essentially since the 1860s when it you know, first started. And given today's environmental laws and the legislation in place to identify suitable places to put large industry, the refinery would never be built with today's modern regulations. And um, it remains this kind of window into what we used to do and where we used to put these large complexes for ease of transport. It's on basically next to two major rivers. But with our modern understanding of how these things impact the environment, there's really no way that that would ever be the location of a refinery today. I went on to ask Pete specifically why the confluence of the Schuylkill and Delaware rivers was not an ideal location for a refinery. The legacy of the refinery and the soil beneath it, if that starts to become inundated with fresh water and then goes back out with any kind of flooding, you have kind of a massive flux of refining distillate that could go into our waterways and, and cause some pretty significant damage. You'll remember from part one that Roderick Coover voiced similar concerns. Here's a reminder. When I moved to Philadelphia in 2004, I started kayaking uh, along the Delaware frequently and uh, began a project filming and photographing a lot of the post-industrial sites along the river, the brown fields, the abandoned factories, and also some of the more active sites, sites that are partially out of use, refineries that have popped up next to old refineries, things like that. I was struck by the potential impact of floods and rising waters and what that would do to this landscape with all of its toxic residue. So what must researchers and residents do to gain a better ecological understanding of the legacy and the potential health impacts of these landscapes in an era of sea level rise? Currently, there are measurements that are being done by the refinery itself as part of a agreement with the Environmental Protection Agency and the Philadelphia Air Management Services who regulate air quality in the region. The refinery is using instrumentation that they agreed with the EPA and Philadelphia Air Management Services to use. It's more standard air quality monitoring. It's not specific in terms of the gases that are being emitted, which are the things that I think are the most concerning from a health perspective. And they don't quite actually live up to the agreement um, in terms of measuring VOCs, which is somewhat disappointing. Neighborhoods closest to the refineries experience the highest rates of asthma, 
In South Philly, for instance, along the lower Schuylkill River where the refinery sits, childhood asthma and hospitalization for asthma are among the highest in the city of Philadelphia. And so Philadelphia overall has a much higher rate of asthma than, than most places in the U.S. and that's likely due to the combination of all the emissions. So asthma is definitely one thing that can be exacerbated by the emissions from the refinery, but other exposures and other areas where people are exposed may also play a, an important role. And so it's hard to disentangle what the exact role of the refinery is, although it's, it's clear that on bad air pollution days, asthma incidence goes up. We need more good quality data to understand the health profile of local neighborhoods. In order to address these issues around data, Pete and his lab have set up a number of ways to collect different kinds of data and independent measurements. Through a variety of small funded projects or classes, have had the opportunity to take some instrumentation from my laboratory out on human-powered boats, so canoes and kayaks, and make measurements as we paddle south from Bartram's Gardens through the refinery. The instruments that we've been using are much higher time resolution. Their measurements are reported on an hourly basis. We report our measurements on a few second basis. So we get many more measurements per hour. We're also making our measurements while moving. So we have to coordinate our measurements with the GPS location of the boat at the time we're making the measurement to give us an idea of where we are spatially. And their measurements are at a fixed site. So it's a single point and it just depends on where the air is coming from and what they see based on that. In addition to new measurements, Pete's research produced new visual perspectives. He set up cameras along the Lower Schuylkill River to create a series of time-lapse videos called Streaming Velocities. The work is a practice in extended looking, going beyond traditional modes of observation. Streaming Velocities displayed in Datum, an art installation that I curated about the Schuylkill River in 2016. Pete's was the only contribution by a scientist. Toggling between the slowness of extended looking and the velocity of the time-lapse, the work urges the viewer to imagine new ways of understanding our relationship with and to an urban river. And yet, his work and time on the water highlight the tension between the certainty of sea level rise and the uncertainty of what the future will look and feel like. If you're interested, you can check out Datum still today online. We've added a link on our data remediations homepage. Uncertainty is also something we address in our conversation as well. The Delaware and the lower Schuylkill River are both tidal rivers. So sea level rise will impact those rivers as they are connected very intimately to the Atlantic Ocean. Since the refinery sits kind of right around the confluence of those two rivers, higher sea level rise is going to encroach upon the refinery. And you know, in the event of large storms with potential surges and high winds, you have the potential for flooding to occur at the refinery in the future. Uh, the question is when, how long will it take for sea levels to get to the point where that is a very real threat. This has been a real challenge for climate change because it's quite abstract, but there are a lot of issues that will hit us directly and immediately. Climate change is global, it covers decades, it's incremental, and it's quite can be quite hard for, I think, all of us to grasp the threat and, in a way, a immediacy of it.
Hi, student intern Katie again. As Grace's interview with Pete clarifies, questions of when, what if, and how long, all point to the frustrating uncertainties and unknowns around Philadelphia's post-industrial landscape, exacerbated by global warming and data poverty. We can't really document the future. It's, uh, one imagines looking forward what futures might be like. When the future is simply too hard to account for, Imaginative storytelling and the arts offer empathetic modes that help make difficult truths accessible. I had the opportunity to speak with artist Roderick Coover, and he shared some of his own insights on the importance of creative interventions and data storytelling. Humans are remarkably resilient and can be more so the more personal tools they have at their disposal. That is, the more ways they have to bring in what is data or information and turn it into actual tools for living a life and that's that's where the arts can help we can't do that in this without also the science the fact is that uh, it's the merger that i find so uh, compelling here and in a way a need to work together particularly because of the abstract nature of climate change much like pete and the residents of eastwick from part one of this episode three Roderick voiced similar concerns over uncertainty in an era of multiple ecological threats, especially after Hurricane Sandy in 2012. Sandy caused over $70 billion in destruction along the Atlantic coast, but for many like Roderick, the consequences of sea level rise and global warming go beyond the bank and hit closer to home. Following Sandy and thinking about the destruction that Sandy brought to people's lives in this area, that I began to think back to where I came from, which is southeast England. Uh, I grew up in a little village just uh, where the English Channel meets the North Sea in Kent, Uh, a village that's just down by the water on shale beneath the White Cliffs of Dover, and a village that is going through quite a lot of difficulties with rising waters. I spent much of my childhood around the Thames, which had a lot of similarities with the Delaware estuary. Coover continued to describe the similarities between Kent County Coast and the Delaware estuary. Both are shaped by marshlands and both struggle to adapt to sea level rise. I think one of the roles of the art and humanities is to help bridge knowledge and experience, to make ideas personal, meaningful, to understand how data relates to lives lived, to the ways you imagine yourself, your past, your future, your culture. So in 2013, I started a project called Estuary. And Estuary was really a visual research project that tried to integrate my exploration of the landscape that I was doing by kayak, by foot, by bicycle, uh, with scientific data and historical data. And from that, I was creating maps and layered photographs, panoramic photographs, and developing a sort of hybrid visual research in an approach, a multimodal approach that I really believe in, um, combining different technologies, combining different techniques of science and art and humanities, and layering these together so the different stories get told. So... Both Pete and Roderick's work demonstrate the important ways that climate change has altered the ways in which we imagine data and its representation. 
Take, for instance, Roderick's other work, Toxicity, which is a combinatory film that he created in collaboration with writer Scott Repberg. So what is a combinatory film? A combinatory film is a film that is driven by an algorithm and combines film clips in different orders every time you see it. It combines images and text and sounds so that what you're watching is continually changing. And the metaphor for toxicity was very appropriate because we saw this, these stories as being like the tides. And with each tide, there's a new set of stories. It's also very suitable for talking about the future because a future has all of these different possibilities and any one of them may become true or any combination of them may become true and the others not quite as much. But why? Why does this future-oriented, arts-driven experimentation matter? And why is it so effective? What uh, happens to floods in that area, for me personally, would be an erasure of memory, an erasure of the past, in very complex ways. The erasure of the smells that one that trigger memories of landscapes that are sensorial, the landscapes of childhood, and the, la- the kind of collective memory that's passed down uh, living in different landscapes. And it helped me relate a little bit more personally also to the consequences of flooding back here along the Delaware estuary and to try and bridge what I'd been looking at as a historical and scientific-based art study as also one that would be personal. In other words, the artist's interventions and attunement to issues around climate change are tightly wound up with ideas about individual or personal memory, as well as collective identity. What struck me was how Roderick's ideas around rivering landscapes mirrored the language of cultural heritage. So I asked him about it. The human heritage is very difficult to separate from the natural heritage. And that natural heritage itself has lots of human aspects to it. The fact that the heritage is also in the toxicity of the muds. It's in the corruption that we've done to nature, or the uh, strange adaptations we forced animals, wildlife to uh, experience. And the heritage is in what's underneath, what um, urban designers often of the waterways describe as the unidentified buried objects, the large pipes that uh, oil tankers sometimes crash into in the Delaware or debris they crash into in the uh, Thames and Channel. And that too is heritage. It's these strange markers from the past, often markers we've forgotten about, that can also cause havoc. What we learn is how ground-truthing is really a mode of engagement with different kinds of human heritage. While we often think of human heritage as objects and artifacts, monuments and great works of art, or archaeological sites, heritage also comprises of landscapes, riverways, mountains. We call them natural heritage. Natural in air quotes, of course. The ground truths of the Eastwick Friends and Neighbors Coalition are also examples of heritage. And Roderick and Pete's work demonstrate how the stuff of heritage can be found in historical maps and personal accounts and narratives, but also in air quality data and new measurements, too. 
So it might be useful to think about these watersheds as what anthropologists have called difficult heritage. That is, the processes of collective negotiation and engagement with uncomfortable and traumatic pasts. And this collective engagement thus becomes a productive way to come to terms with the past and its lingering presence. Imagination and different kinds of storytelling are central aspects of confronting heritage that are simultaneously difficult, but also are the places that many different people and non-human species call home. The difficulty of Philadelphia's post-industrial riverine landscapes, dotted with old factories and oil refineries, poses important questions about uncertain futures and also forces us to come to terms with human actions, both past, present, and future. In episode four, we will return to the life cycles of data. That is, the cycle of data's creation, stewardship, and preservation, as well as its use. Thanks Thanks for listening. listening. Catch up with you next episode. Bye. (laughs)